Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Sunny Dadley, FRSA. That's Fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Social Leadership Guy, Consultant, Coach and Motivational Speaker. You can find him on Twitter at Sunny Dadley. That's at S-U-N-N-Y-D-H-A-D-L-E-Y. Sunny, welcome. Thank you for having me. I need to apologise to our listeners in advance for some of the audio quality on today's show. But we're in the middle of coronavirus lockdown and we're going to do the best we can with the online resources at our disposal. Right, I've encountered some fascinating personal stories on this show. Marie Cooper started out a bus driver, ended up chief executive of an engineering group. Daniel Sattar's career at Big Issue Invest has been inspired by his early life experiences with refugees in Bangladesh. But I have a feeling you are up there with them, Sonny. Can you tell us about your journey? I was brought up in an area that was very multicultural. A lot of people similar to myself, first generation born. And then at the age of about six or seven, uh, my father decided to purchase a business outside of where we lived. Uh, And that was a massive culture shock for me because I I went from a a very multicultural environment to one where I was literally the only person of colour that lived on my whole council estate. That said, I had a wonderful time. I really excelled at school. My dad was popular because he's quite a bubbly character. And I never really, you know, felt awkward being in that situation. Sometimes, you know, when I look back, you know, some of the comments and things that people would say, there's no other way of saying it, that there were racist comments. But it was almost as if, well, not you, Sonny, you're one of us. So we're comfortable to say these things in front of you, which is, um, you know, I didn't really take it to heart at the time. But looking back, it kind of demonstrated to me how different people, you know, view others and view the world around us. I then, you know, ended up receiving a, a scholarship to, to attend a local grammar school. So again, that was a, an environment, a culture that I was just not accustomed to. You know, people were quite affluent. They were coming back from holiday in the Swiss Alps. And, and that was just a, fo- a foreign, foreign entity to me. At that age, around about 11 or 12, I started really questioning, you know, myself and the world around me and did I fit in here or did not fit in here? And that culminated in me, you know, really misbehaving at school, being suspended, expelled numerous times. And perhaps, you know, it would have been better if I could articulate what I was feeling. But as a young person, I didn't really understand, you know, what was going on. But I knew that I, if I acted in certain ways, I'd get attention, not always positive attention. And because of my lack of ability to conform to that form of education I then started you know mixing with other circles different people from outside of the school environment or from different different parts of the city where I lived and yeah that really kind of uh, was a a time in my life whereby I was introduced to things perhaps that I shouldn't have been introduced to at a young age Uh, but looking back at it I mean these are experiences that I had in my life such as being involved in gangs and being involved in violence and street violence and all these sorts of things that for me wasn't really natural but it it did again it it exposed me to a side of life that perhaps took away my innocence from from quite a quite a young age so this went on for uh, many years I ended up you know using a variety of substances uh, illicit drugs and that led to me then becoming addicted to using heroin and crack cocaine 
Uh, and when I say addicted, um, I was enslaved to using those drugs uh, by any means necessary, getting the funds. And at, at that point in my life, in the midst of that, I didn't see myself living my life in any other way. I didn't know how I could get out of this. I didn't know other people that had been through it and got out of it. But as I reflect upon this time in my life, having a, a one hour health meeting with a doctor and a, a, and a trained professional talking about all the things that I was doing wrong in my life and focusing on all this negativity didn't really resonate with me and it didn't make me really want to to change uh, but I, you know I, I got to a point where I knew I had to change I either was going to go down a road where I'd end up in prison or, or worse still dead and I distinctly remember thinking well actually I can't rely on anyone else to, to do this this is a decision that I have to make so I went back into in, into the service that I've been accessing for a, a number of years and I asked for a certain type of intervention I wanted to detox and that that wasn't necessarily met with uh, the response that I'd hoped for uh, I was met with a response that questioned why I wanted this um, and almost made me feel guilty for asking for it and I was told that I couldn't detox now this was my first experience of championing the rights of somebody that used drugs and that person was me and I ended up basically having a detox that I went through at my, at my parents house in Wolverhampton and detox many times before but what was different this time around was that I was focused on building a life for myself you know all this time that I'd spent as a bright young kid and going through you know rigorous testing to, to check my abilities uh, I knew within me that there was potential and I wanted that potential to be unleashed so I, I started a detox in, in 2007 on the 10th of September. I finished this on the, on the 20th of September uh, 2007 and then got married on the 30th of September 2007. So literally that was, that was a life-changing month for me. And then I, the very next day after that, I, I flew out to, to Bali on honeymoon, uh, had a wonderful time uh, and really felt that I, I received instant gratification. So this hell that I'd been through the detox I remember walking along the beach in Bali and thinking, wow, I made the right decision. So then that time went by and it was great. I landed back in the UK and realized that there was nothing really in place for people like me to integrate. So that the treatment, the drug treatment service had done their job as far as they were concerned. Now it was up to me to kind of define my own path moving forward. So I explored different opportunities. I, I, I sign myself up for counselling and through this process was introduced to an organisation that initially I, I volunteered with that I then went on to lead for uh, over 10 years. Well, so would you like to tell us more about that organisation? Yeah, so I, I joined a fledgling, a startup organisation uh, by the name of SUIT, which is an acronym, it stands for the Service User Involvement Team. Uh, and SUIT had recently been set up by a commissioner, a forward-thinking commissioner that felt the need to have an organisation there to, to vet and critique services that were there to support people. So, I mean, how wonderful for someone like me that had just been through services for a number of years to then join an organisation where I could, you know, share my experiences with other people, not dictate to them, oh, you need to do this because I've done this, but I was there to actually listen, to, to get feedback, and then write a, a short report, give that to the, the, the person that was leading the organisation, and then he would do with it whatever he wanted to do. I mean, I didn't, wasn't really au okay with what he did with that. But then I later learned that, you know, that the focus was around strategically influencing services. So the views of people going through 
issues with addiction in the criminal justice system in the community the people that funded the services wanted to understand what the what the people's experiences were and then hopefully in turn then improve the experiences of people going through such services now within a very short period of time i progressed from a volunteer to to project worker to to leader and when i say short period of time around about five months which is in complete opposite to all the advice that I was told while I was, you know, coming out of my addiction, which was, well, well, you can't work in this sector for at least two years, or other people said three years, someone said five years. And I suppose what happened to me demonstrated that often we, we listen to what other people say, particularly when we're in a vulnerable state as being gospel. That must be the truth because this person's trained, they've been to university, they're, you know, experienced. So the fact that within five months I was leading an organisation, you know, demonstrates that you know we have to sometimes uh, check and balance what people are saying. So then the organisation, once I was in charge of it, was an opportunity for me to really kind of learn about myself, learn about you know how I would act as somebody in a leadership role. Uh, but then more importantly, it went on to be more than something that just offered uh, an opportunity for people to feed back and feed their opinions into. Uh, and in actual fact, by the time that I left was you know, twice cited as a, a European model of best practice, as well as various other things, because we de I developed it into a service. And the reason that it was developed into a service was because through the process of speaking to people, attending strategic meetings and saying, you know, people saying this, people saying that, I realized that there was a massive disparity between the, the real life experiences of people that, that were vulnerable and marginalized compared to the strategic aspirations. So, you know, one of the, the common comments that I would hear is that, oh, it's, it's, it's good that you raised that, Sonny. It's interesting that people are saying that they're having this particular issue because we're actually looking at that at the moment. And at first I, I would take that as something, some action will happen. But then, you know, a month, two months, three months down the line, you know, nothing's changed. People are still experiencing difficulties in the same way that I originally uh, raised. So rather than waiting for other services to change, I thought, well, actually, this is an opportunity for us to intervene and to advocate and to actually provide support where people have been let down by other services. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that other services were doing that intentionally, but you know, I think by having the, the, the space to be able to, to develop um, suit into something that was more than uh, a service just to, to hear people's views, um, we actually had a chance to actually transform people's lives. Uh, and, and that for me was something that would happen on a small scale, but also on, on a quite, quite large scale. So I ended up developing a range of programs, a peer mentoring program. We had in-reach work into prison. We'd go and raise awareness in, in faith groups and in community groups and housing associations. And ultimately used every interaction that we had to dispel the myths and stigma associated with addiction, which was then in turn impacting consciously or un unconsciously um, how services were interacting with people that had issues around drug drug misuse. You had a meteoric rise to leadership. How did you find that? Uh, well, first of all, um, you know, many people spoke a language that I didn't understand. So you know, there were lots of acronyms being thrown about, abbreviations. You know, I was asked to, to add some value into discussions and proceedings without understanding the con context. And for me, context is massively important. So I would be that really annoying person in the room that would ask all the why questions. You know, why is that important? Where does their funding come from? 
you know, what's deemed a success. So basically by, by being proactive about understanding the context, I was then given the best opportunity to, to influence proceedings. Now, some of the questions I would ask, because there were some really glaringly obvious wrongs that were taking place within society, uh, would be met by a deafening silence. So I remember asking about, you know, how, how we can tackle race disparity in the criminal justice system, for example. And I remember there was a silence that seemed to last forever, only for the response then to be, well, that's not something that we can deal with in this environment, Sonny. Um, so, I, you know, that would then give me more motivation to find out who can answer these questions. You know, who do I need to speak to or influence or liaise with or what do I need to read to find out why things are the way they are? So for me, you know, certain leaders that I've met have exuded kind of compassion and passion. And I've met other leaders who I would have expected to be more passionate, particularly if uh, they're in charge of, you know, something to do with care or improving the life experiences of people. And I would be just be taken aback just to see how cold certain people were. But again, this for me, that was all part of the learning, not to look at necessarily the role that people were in, but to, to look at kind of different functions within the system. And, you know, if there are certain blockages in this part of the, the, the system, then how do we work around that? Uh, and I very much embraced that thinking, which then allowed me to develop a service that circumnavigated complex and cumbersome systems and made them much more efficient, providing outstanding value for money. But most importantly, meeting the needs of people in ways that a multitude of other services couldn't. So Suit went from strength to strength. Why did you leave? In a way, I wanted to practice what I preached. And, and what I mean by that is every single person that I would come into contact with, and you know, just to give a bit of context around that, although I was leading the organisation and strategically influencing uh, and managing the contract and all those sorts of things, I would carry a caseload of between 120 and 150 people at any given time. So I was constantly interacting with people. Uh, and through this interaction, I would always continually push learning and growth, whether that's being able to have basic numeracy and liter literacy skills, which many of our guys and girls lacked, all the way up to kind of, you know, really pushing and creating a mindset for people so that they could grow themselves. So in essence, I, I decided to practice what I preached. And after 12 years of being there and achieving all of the wonderful things that we did uh, and you know having such dynamic delivery and creating such transformation within lives and communities i wanted basically to share this learning with the wider world and you know now is an opportunity for, for me to take all of this learning and do that in addition to that you know we went through two tender processes and anyone that knows about tendering services it's quite complex it's quite timely and you know it's resource intensive so we went through two tender periods in a very short period of time so there was all there would always be a threat to our existence if funding was removed then our system our service would cease to cease to deliver and although that you know we were successful in both of these tender processes part of my motivation and the way in which i wanted to leave was to leave the organization in a strong position and in, in as strong a position as i could so when I left, you know, I left, I left my successor and the team with seven years worth of funding so they can continue doing what they're doing. But it wasn't an, an easy decision to, for me to, to make. You know, I loved everything about my, my time there. But life is full of circles and chapters and I felt it was the right time for me to, to progress on to the next chapter of my life. 
So what have you been working on lately? Yeah, immediately after after leaving, I, I took some time out to be a full-time dad to my, my three young children. I, you know, I've been speaking at um, events, conferences. I, I gave a, a TEDx talk. I've been an ambassador for a, a, a political uh, campaign, although I'm non-partisan myself. I've supported the develop, development of something called the uh, the Lex movement, which is the lived experience movement, which is basically to, to give agency to people like me and other people. And there's many of us out there in society who have experienced certain um, social harms in their lives and gone about doing something to, to do something about it. I'm now you know, facilitating workshops. I'm writing guidance for entire sectors, such as the homelessness sector uh, and anything else really to enhance social cohesion and bring about positive social impact and policy reform. Because for me, these are the things that underpin some of the inadequacies and inefficiencies and wrongs that exist within society. In your Wolverhampton TEDx talk, which is excellent, uh, but far too short, you talk about the deep-rooted societal factors behind drug addiction. Would you like to tell us more? Early on, I was being exposed to people who were suffering from addiction and it became re- very apparent really quickly that it wasn't necessarily the drink or the drug that was the problem. But, you know, 99% of people I was coming into contact with and, and trying to work alongside and support, you know, were, were living in poverty, were living in deprivation. They had poor level and quality of housing, that people had a, a real lack of positive social networks. I mean, a lot of this I could relate to for myself, but it was interesting then when I had a professional hat on to, to see for, with, with that lens. Often people, you know, would have low levels of education, skills or training and were still very low aspirations of themselves. Because I not- I started noticing all of these things, I couldn't understand why these, these issues were not being dealt with adequately and not receiving the, the level of attention that they deserved. And, you know, it goes back to that thing I mentioned around strategic disparity. If somebody was in front of us and they were uh, addicted to whatever drug it may be, um, their immediate need might not be to address their, their drug use. It might be the fact that they need a roof over their head or they need some food in their belly. And far too often services wouldn't focus on, on the whole person. So because of these societal factors and issues, the program that, that that we developed, the program of support, was very very much to see the whole person, and then to to actually empower that person to say decide what they needed on a, any given day, whilst at the same time then feeding in, uh, empowering messages and encouraging people to to address other issues in their lives, uh, and because we did it in such a way, you know, we had a reputation within the community that that was unparalleled. No other service was deemed in the way that ours was. Um, was it our lived experience? Because the rest of my team also had lived experience that, that made that happen. You know, definitely, I think that, that added value to it. But I think more than that, it was it was based on compassion to see another human being uh, not suffer uh, and to actually, you know, receive whatever they wanted and needed in their lives to, to, to improve the quality of their life. So these deep-rooted societal factors exist around us all the time. And I think, you know, what I was able to do was demonstrate within a a service delivery model how we could encompass the whole person. You're on the record as saying drug policy causes far more harm than it does good. 
Why do you say that? I say that because, you know, the war on drugs and President Nixon in 1971 declared a war on drugs and we were going to eradicate the world of, of drugs. Um, actually, in actual fact, in reality, turned into a war on people that use drugs. And I don't think it should ever have been about that. I think it's disproportionately affected poor people and traumatized and people who were traumatized and punished them whilst people who were making the real money, not the people pushing it on the streets, you know, the people that we, we often never hear about or those that go relatively unknown or untouched are really excelling within and within their life. Um, and I would call for the government to really be in charge of and tax and regulate the illicit drug market. I think that makes much more sense. I think for those people that are worried about drugs being legal, meaning that more people will use them, arguments, uh, I would say that, you know, what's more dangerous, having drugs that are unregulated, that we don't know the quality of available freely to people of any age, um, where the, the consequences could be horrific, or should we be grown up about it and, and think, well, actually, the people are going to do this anyway, all this effort that's been made and the, and the millions and billions of pounds that have been spent on trying to eradicate drugs have just completely failed. So, so I think, you know, that there's ways in which we could actually look at drugs and place them within a regulated market. I mean, I must say at the very least, we should consider decriminalization. You know, when I was an active drug user, uh, was I an, uh, you know, a really active criminal? Not at all. You know, I was somebody who perhaps was, you know, had suffered and been through certain trauma in my life that used drugs as a way of self-medicating. So then to be further demonized and, and be deemed as and seen as a criminal by virtue of my addiction is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and the other thing just to mention on current drug policy is that, you know, I, I would always be amazed at the age of people I was buying drugs from. These weren't you know, middle-aged, generally speaking, people. These were really poor, usually black, black kids of really rough estates that were using the availability of drugs and the sale of drugs to support their families and loved ones. So I think, on one hand, drug policy reform is about changing how we look at the world of drugs and how they are acquired and controlled. But then also, I think that you know, we have a, a duty to support people who perhaps rely upon the sale of drugs as a way of surviving. You've written about lived experience for both NHS Digital and the Conservative Drug Reform Group. Would you like to say more? The term lived experience in itself could relate to anybody on the planet. We all have experience in some way, shape or form. I suppose the lived experience that, that I tend to focus on is around the experiences of people suffering from hardships. Uh, and this hardship could come for a number of reasons. You know, from my experience, especially in the early days, uh, and it's probably still apparent to this day in, in different ways, the involvement of people with lived experience is often tokenistic. And what I would say is that there's often a resistance to full immersion. Uh, and what I mean by that is to actually have lived experience thread throughout decision-making, delivery of, of, of services, of monitoring and evaluation. I suppose if you say that you think about traditional approaches of going about daily business, whatever that business may be, uh, but particularly for so social harms, I think traditional methods of academia and you know certain governance structures, you know, would, would possibly take us towards seventy-five percent of the solution. 
could have the, the medicines that are right for people. We could generally have services that are okay and, and can set targets against those services that would hopefully make a difference. I suppose what, what I'd like to see is that I'd love to see lived experience with all of this rich intelligence, given the, given the agency that it's, it's due. Um, I believe that lived experience can provide that extra crucial 25% to efforts that would transform our com communities, improve our systems and really tackle global problems. You've just qualified as an agile project manager. That's not the sort of qualification that most social entrepreneurs hold. What was your thinking behind it? Yeah, so uh, Agile, you know, w when I heard about it and I, I looked into the, the history of Agile, uh, for me, it was about learning a new discipline and challenging myself. I've always tried to do things to try and expand my own thinking and horizons. You know, the, the wider thinking around it was to, to see how we could use Agile to, to bring about greater efficiency to the public sector in particular. As somebody that's worked in or around the public sector and charity sector, I think there's so much great work that takes place, but also some glaringly obvious inefficiencies that exist. And as somebody that, that survived, whose organisation survived on very little funding, you know, I wanted to look at ways in which I could, you know, elevate myself either through education, learning, training, to try and, you know, be able to influence things to make them more efficient and effective. And Agile just seemed to, seemed to plug that gap for me. You're an independent ambassador for the Labour Party. You have deep grassroots knowledge. Have you ever considered going into politics? <laughs> um, yeah, you're not the first person to ask me that question, to be honest. So I completed a parliamentary shadowing programme back in 2018. And I spent a year shadowing an MP and, you know, in, in Westminster and in, in, the, in the local constituency office. And I, I had the, an opportunity to go behind the scenes uh, and to see day to day what MPs and their backroom staff do. And to be honest, it was fascinating. What was interesting was that I, I noticed that a lot of the problems and issues that people were bringing forward to their MP were very similar to things that we would see that um, within suits and our offices. Uh, one of the main differences in terms of being able to do something about it was that we didn't necessarily have a, a direct in to the Home Office or a direct in to the Department of Work and Work and Pensions. Uh, but it was, it was you know, really good to, to see how, how such issues are, are being dealt with. I mean, you never know. Uh, perhaps one day my journey will lead me uh, to a career in politics. But in the meantime, I just, you know, I'm dedicated to continuing uh, to help the world in, in any way that I can. can never say never. If being more involved in politics will bring about social change and make the lives of communities improve, then, yeah, I'd be up for that. But let's see how, how things develop. Do you have a personal leadership philosophy? I suppose I have more of a life philosophy that feeds into, into my leadership philosophy. Uh, and maybe because of my experiences or both professionally and personally, I basically see that I'm, I'm no better or, or worse than anyone else. I'm no different to somebody that sits in high office making decisions as I am to somebody that's you know outside a train station homeless. Uh, and I think having that kind of outlook on life has really helped me in terms of my, my leadership. I very much practice servant leadership uh, and my profession built that within me. So how I came into a leadership role meant that I was the first 
no, I've been a tea maker. I've been a, a person that would open the door. I'd be the one going and running in, and getting things from the photocopier, you know, all the way up to, to leadership. So, you know, I think I'm very humbled in terms of my approach. And I think that to have respect within leadership for me, this should be earned by, you know, the content of somebody's character rather than perhaps their status. So, so that's kind of my outlook on, on leadership. And I'll hopefully I can continue looking at it, looking at it in that way. I'm sure I will. What's your proudest achievement? I mean, there's, there's, there's been lots of really great things that have happened in my life. I mean, none better than being a father to three young children uh, and being present to help them, you know, to grow spiritually, emotionally, educationally, and all of those things. If I then consider the work that I've done, uh, I've been really lucky and blessed to have been recognised for, for, for my work personally and organisationally. You know, I, I was awarded Chartered Manager of the Year, Dedication to the City Award. But I think that the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service is one that really broke the mould in terms of what lived experience can achieve and what lived experience organisations can achieve. Um, even on the, the certificate, it said, you know, something along the lines of demonstrating to society that those with difficulties can overcome them, but not just for them individually, also use those um, experiences to constructively help others and give back to society. So I'd say the Queen's Award was was one that really stands out for me. Uh, and I don't think anybody ever expected us to be anywhere close to being recognised in that way. Is there a person or persons that has inspired you along your journey? I've been really lucky to, to be inspired by lots of people. Um, almost every person that, that I, I would come into contact with uh, would teach me something that I didn't know. You know, and that could be through positive experience or negative experience. And so I think there's been lots of really great people that I've met. You know, I've had some of the most insightful moments with people sat in their prison cells while I've gone into to help and support them that have taught me things about, about the world around us that I wasn't aware of. But I think, you know, if we look into history, you know, the people that, that, that I really look up to and believe have helped me to believe in myself are, you know, people like Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King. That, that whole movement, you know, really started something and, you know, ignited a fire within me. And Nelson Mandela, you know, they're very you know, typical ones to say, but, you know, these are people that have really demonstrated that, that change is possible, but they've been really humble uh, and approach things with humility and love and compassion. So I'm always going to be drawn to people like that. Do you have a self-care regime? I mean, I try and exercise daily uh, and that could be, short as a 15 minute workout to a half an hour run or jog. I practice gratitude. Uh, so I have a gratitude list every day. I am, you know, dedicated spiritually. You know, I pray every day and try and practice eating well, you know, eating fresh food. I think these these are the things that, that are kind of nurturous uh, physically. And so I think the physical side of it's really important, but also the, the for me, the spiritual spiritual side is massively, massively important. Is there a book, podcast or video you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? I think there's lots of great leadership books out there that, that, that would help leaders at different stages in their life and career. So I'm currently reading a book called Turn the Ship Around uh, by David Marquette. Uh, and it's about his insight of turning um, followers in, in, into, into leaders, uh, which is a, a concept that I'm really kind of drawn to uh, based on his experience within the US Navy. 
Um, next, I'll be reading a, a wonderful book uh, that I'm really looking forward to called Compassionate Leadership by somebody called Chris, Chris Whitehead. So, so that's next on my list. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating read. Honestly, much, much more broadly speaking, I think, you know, there's so much accessible content out there in so many different forms. So, you know, I would encourage people just to keep learning and to keep connecting with things that inspire you. That's interesting. Turn the Ship Around was also the recommendation of Adrian Brown in episode three of this podcast. Now, at this stage, Sonny, I normally ask my guest, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I'd probably say don't be too caught up on having all the answers. I think I would I used to struggle, even from a young age, when people would ask me questions that I didn't have the answer to. You know, what, what do you want to be when you're older was the typical one. And I think, you know, we're, we're brought up in an environment whereby we're expected to have all the answers. And at the age of 20, I didn't have any answers to anything. You know, I was living literally day to day. Um, so what I would say to my 20 year, 20 year old self is just um, just take it easy. Don't be too harsh on yourself. Things will work out. Um, you have a passion within you that, you know, will will be unleashed to help the world. And you'll get through this period that you're going through. And it's important that you, you know, really are in tune with the things that make you happy. Sonny, thanks for this insight into your career so far. It's an inspiring demonstration of what can be done with a learning and growth mindset and a servant heart. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. This episode was recorded in Wolverhampton and Sheffield by Squadcast. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on the CPU Records.